0: One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two Two experts. experts.
1: I'm Kristen Pitts.
0: I'm Brandi Egan. Let's Let's go to to court. court.
1: On this episode, I'll talk about a sexual assault allegation that took the University of Virginia by
0: storm. And I'll be talking about the Bever family murders. I'm so excited for yours. Mostly yeah. because you've been <laughs> such a pill
1: for Happened. months. And you've been like, I have one in mind and it's in the news right now. I have to wait for it to wrap up. So I've been like, is it Cosby? Yes. Is it Oh okay. like I
0: I feel like I text you like at least once a week, like I figured it out. I figured out. I know what case it is. And you have not yet guessed it. But yeah. now today's the day. I'm thrilled. And I have not heard of the Bever family murder.
1: Excellent. And weirdly, I'm excited. <laughs>
0: Okay. I'll be sure to bring that down once I get into the Brutal Murders. Um, I'm going to bring it down real hard, too. Oh, excellent. Oh, good. This is going to be a real feel good episode. Do you know the Rolling Stones story? Mm -mm. Oh, man. Prepare to be bummed. Okay. Yikes. Yeah. Let me center myself. Um, I like your military style jacket, by the way. Oh, really? Thanks. This is the one that I put on, and Zach was like, excuse me, this is the one that I put on, and I was, like, really feeling myself in it, and, like, (laughs) I went into Zach, and I was like, what do you think? And he's like, uh, what's with the buttons? You look like a Civil War soldier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Which is precisely why
0: I complimented you (laughs) on it. I love that he said that. And it is a military-style jacket. Yeah, it's it's called a military jacket.
1: And you look like you're fresh from the
0: Civil War. Fresh out of the Civil War, missing a leg. You've got one tin cup that you have not washed and you've (laughs) shared with everybody. Just sideburns for days. (laughs) All right, you ready for this? I am. Okay. Bring on the sexual assault, Kristen. (laughs)
1: Something we say so often all the around time. here. <laughs> this story all began with a 2014 article in Rolling Stone. Um, it's a beautifully written article. I remember where I was when I first read it, and it's absolutely horrific. Mm-hmm. It was called A Rape on Campus, A Brutal Assault, and Struggle for Justice at UVA. It's like 9,000 words long, and it took the reporter about five months to investigate wow. it. Wow. Um, It's a very sensitive subject, so obviously she uses a lot of pseudonyms. Mm -hmm. So, in general, I'm not using the person's real name. Yeah, And it's going to take me a while to sum up the article for you, because this is all about this article. Yeah. And here we go. (laughs) The story opens with Jackie. And Jackie's super excited. College is going great. She's a freshman from a small town in Virginia. And she just met this guy, Drew, at the college pool, where they're both lifeguards. And Drew is a junior, and he's a member of this prestigious frat. And holy shit, I forgot to look up how to pronounce the frat name. I don't know these Greek
0: letters. You do your best, and then I will tell you if you're correct. (laughs) (laughs) Pi Kappa Psi? Yeah, that's right.
1: Man, okay, good. All right, so she's at a Pi Kappa Psi frat party with Drew and she's discreetly pouring the contents of her drink onto the gross frat house floor because she doesn't want to drink mm-hmm. but she doesn't want to look like a priss yeah. either and at a certain point Drew asks, "Hey, do you want to go upstairs where it's quieter?" So she's excited, she follows Drew upstairs into this pitch black room. She calls out his name and someone bumps into her. She screams. All of a sudden, she realizes that this room is full of men. One man knocks her backward onto, like, a glass coffee table thing, and it shatters. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Another man is holding back her arms. She hears all these voices. She's terrified. One of the men puts his hand over her mouth to keep her quiet. She bites it. He punches her in the face. All the guys start laughing.
0: Yeah, that's hilarious.
1: Yeah, for a second, she hopes maybe this is some kind of awful prank. Um, but then one of the guys shouts, Grab its motherfucking leg. <gasps> it's. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, this story is bad. Fuck. And she knew she was about to be raped. Mm-hmm. So for three hours, five men took turns raping her while two watched.
0: Oh my God.
1: They were shouting each other's nicknames and cheering each other on. And then, as the last man began raping her, she studied his face and she actually recognized him as this guy from her anthropology class. Oh my gosh. And he actually looked upset, like he might cry. And he told the other guys, I can't do it. He couldn't get it up. And so uh-huh. they started mocking him. And one of them said, Don't you want to be a brother? We all had to do it. So you do it too. So he raped her with a beer bottle.
0: Oh my God.
1: At 3 a.m., Jackie woke up alone, and she ran shoeless, beaten, and spattered in blood out of the frat house. The party was still going on, but no one seemed to notice or care as she fled the scene. Mm -hmm. She called her three best friends, two guys and a girl, and she said, Something bad happened. I need you to come get me. They got to her as quickly as she could, and her friend Randall, again, not his real name, Mm -hmm was like, we've got to get you to a hospital. Yeah. But her friend Cindy said, is that really such a good idea? Her reputation will be shot for the next four years. What? Yeah, what's your reaction to that?
0: That she needs to go to the hospital. Yeah. the re- Reputation? That doesn't matter. Yeah. Her
1: other friend Andy agreed with Cindy. What the fuck? The social costs were too high. No. Which, yeah, rape victims pay a social cost, unfortunately, sometimes, but that should not be what the friends are saying in that no, moment. No, definitely That's ridiculous. not. Um, and Andy was like, Randall, you and I both want to pledge frats. How is this going, going to affect us? What the fuck? Finally, Cindy summed it up. She was like, if we go to a hospital or if we report this, she's going to be the girl who cried rape and will never be invited to another frat party again.
0: Yep. That's the right decision. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. So that's the opening of the article.
1: Ugh. The gang rape happened in 2012, and the reporter began talking to Jackie in 2014. And in the remainder of the story, the writer talked about how Jackie was obviously still struggling. She received almost no support from anyone on campus. And when she told her roommate she was going to talk to a reporter, the roommate was like, where's your loyalty? This is (gasps) going to make the University of Virginia look bad.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So I'm going to read you a portion of the article. It says, At UVA, rapes are kept quiet, both by students who brush off sexual assaults as regrettable but inevitable casualties of their cherished party culture, and by an administration that critics say is less concerned with protecting students than it is with protecting its own reputation from scandal. Some UVA women, so sickened by the university's culture of hidden sexual violence, have taken to calling it UV rape. Holy shit! So this was a huge problem at UVA to the point that the federal government had taken notice. The UVA was one of 86 colleges being investigated by the government under suspicion that the university was denying students their equal right to education by inadequately handling sexual violence. complaints. Yeah. Beyond that, the UVA was one of 12 colleges under an even deeper compliance review by the Department of Education's Civil Rights Office. Wow. So... The university had a big problem uh, that they were failing to address, and Jackie was on the receiving end of that problem. Mm-hmm. After the rape, she became suicidal, hardly ever left her room, was failing her classes. It got so bad that her academic dean called her into his office, and Jackie went to that meeting with her mom, and her mom said that Jackie had had a bad experience at a party. The academic advisor gave A bad experience. Yeah.
0: That's an understatement. Yep.
1: Yep. The academic advisor gave Jackie the contact info for Dean Nicole Aramo, the head of the UVA's sexual misconduct board. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Jackie met with Nicole. And for the record, um, UVA declined to make Aramo available for comment for this article. So she wasn't even able to do an interview. Mm -hmm. The article explains that Nicole is beloved by survivors. Mm -hmm. Sexual assault survivors at UVA all really love her, but a trip to her office isn't confidential, and most Mm -hmm. students don't know that. Mm -hmm. Each complaint goes into the federally mandated crime statistics, and Nicole can, at her own discretion, share details
0: with school administrators. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a problem. Why? Why? It's such a personal thing. Yeah. A sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And the fact that these victims are brave enough to go speak to anybody about it. Yeah. I think there's an assumption of confidentiality when that happens. I agree. And, and so, for that not to be the not case, confidentiality.
1: Then they need to know right up front. Absolutely. Like, hey, if you want a confidential conversation, you need to go to
0: a yeah, therapist a therapist. Or, yeah. This is not. Yeah, this is not yeah. a confidential.
1: Wow. So Nicole listened to Jackie's story, and she told Jackie, "Look, you've got three options. Uh, number one, you can go to the police, or you can keep it within the school. From there, we can either." one, file a complaint with the sexual misconduct board in front of a jury of students and faculty. A dean would act as the judge, and it would result in a formal resolution. Mm-hmm. Or you can confront the attackers in my presence, tell them how you feel, and I'll make my own suggestions. <laughs> which to me is like, hey, rapists, go get counseling. I don't know. Yeah, And that's refer- referred to as an informal resolution, which I want to pause here and be like, I just don't understand why colleges even attempt to take this stuff on, unless no it's to help cover it up. Well,
0: I mean, I think from at least some portion of it has to be to cover it up, minimize it, you know. I just, I don't understand
1: it at all. Like, if someone's at work and they get sexually assaulted there, they don't deal with that at work. Right. I I don't get it. Yeah. So, the article goes into how, in these situations, administrators defend these options as oh, the survivor has a choice, which is important to give survivors choice. I mean, yeah. obviously, they've had no choice for a while, but it generally results in not much, if anything, actually happening. Yeah. So, the university gets to appear to support rape survivors, but nothing hardly ever happens to the rapists. And the bad press of a rape never gets reflected on the school. Parents don't hear about it. Students don't hear about it. It's like it never happened. Yeah. So then the article goes into crime statistics and how sexual assaults don't usually appear in the statistics. So I'm going to read to you again from the article. In the last academic year, 38 students went to a Ramo about a sexual assault, up from about 20 students three years ago. However, of those 38, only nine resulted in complaints. The other 29 students evaporated. Of those nine complaints, four resulted in sexual misconduct board hearings. UVA wasn't willing to disclose their outcomes, citing privacy. Like most colleges, sexual assault proceedings at UVA unfold in total secrecy. Asked why UVA doesn't publish all its data, President Sullivan explains that it might not be in keeping with best practices, and thus may inadvertently discourage reporting. Jackie got a different explanation when she eventually asked Dina Ramo the same question. She says, Ramo answered Riley, because nobody wants to send their daughter to the rape school.
0: Yeah, that's. I think that's the... Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the real answer. That's the real answer.
1: So the article went on to detail a bunch of other stories, some going back decades, about women being raped on campus and administrators either... Not caring or just being more concerned about how this would affect the school. So Jackie's still trying to decide what she'll do with mm-hmm. her three options. In the meantime, she starts going to a sexual assault support group on campus. And while she was there, she learned something really disturbing. That two other young women had also been gang raped at Pi Kappa Psi. Oh my gosh. Jap- Jackie became more vocal against sexual assault and then she became a target. At one point, some guys recognized her from a sexual assault awareness presentation and flung a bottle at her face. What? Yeah, she wound up with a big red bruise around her eye. Oh, my gosh. So she made another appointment with Nicole. She wanted to discuss two things, the harassment and these other gang Mm -hmm. rapes that she'd heard about. And for the record, neither of the victims wanted to talk to Rolling Mm -hmm. Stone. But when Jackie talked to Nicole, Nicole just seemed indifferent to the whole thing. So we're getting toward the end of the article now. Mm -hmm. It's clear this reporter has been looking into the story for a long time and trying to get interviews with a lot of UVA officials. And the reporter learned that UVA had learned enough about her story that they were putting Pi Kappa Psi under investigation. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Nicole called Jackie back into her office. And Jackie brought a friend. And Nicole told them that she'd heard through the grapevine that all the boys involved have graduated.
0: hmm
1: Jackie was like, but I just saw one of those dudes on campus. Oh, my gosh. So I'm just going to read you the end of the article. Jackie tells me of a recurring nightmare she's been having in which she's watching herself climb those Pi Kappa Psi stairs. She frantically calls to herself to stop but knows it's too late. That in real life, she's already gone up those stairs and into that terrible room, and things will never be the same. It bothers Jackie to know that Drew and the rest get to walk away as if nothing happened, but that she still walks toward that room every night and blames herself for it during the day. Everything bad in my life now is built around that one bad decision that I made, she says. All because I went to that stupid party.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's horrible.
1: yeah, it's a horrible, horrible story. Yeah. Um, and when it came out in November of 2014, it was huge. Mm-hmm. It got more than 2.7 million views, wow. which is more views than any Rolling Stone story ever mm-hmm. that wasn't written about a celebrity. Yeah, it was it was crazy mm-hmm. In the wake of this story, people were outraged. Applications to UVA dropped uh-huh. obviously. obviously. Pi Kappa Psi was vandalized. People graffitied the house uh, with things like UVA Center for Rape Studies, which I <laughs> just think is funny. <laughs> and stop raping people, which is just, you know, more direct. Uh, yes. that's sev- just
0: good advice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> really, that should be graffitied everywhere. <laughs> Several windows in the house were broken. UVA President Teresa Sullivan suspended all Greek organizations for a few months just so they could figure out what the hell was going yeah. on, you know. Charlottesville police began investigating the gang rape. The fraternity voluntarily suspended itself for a while. But, you know, people obviously wanted more. They wanted justice. Yeah. And they wanted Nicola Ramo to resign. Yeah. So the university was under scrutiny. Mm-hmm. The hmm fraternity was under scrutiny. Mm-hmm and the article was under scrutiny. What? The author of the piece was Sabrina Erdely, a freelance journalist who had covered a bunch of high-profile issues. After this piece came uh, came out, a bunch of people wanted to talk to her because this was like the hot piece of journalism at that moment. And one of the first outlets she talked to was the Slate podcast. Uh I'm going to read you a transcript from that interview. Hold on.
0: Drink your tea so you can spill the tea, Kristen.
1: <laughs> How dare you? This is warm water with lemon, and this oh, is tea over sake.
0: here. <laughs> Such a diva.
1: <laughs> Where are my candles? I demand white candles.
0: And only blue M&M's. I knew you were going to say that! <laughs> Actually, what? take that back. I thought you were going to say only green M&M's, but... Why did you think Green? I don't know. Because it's the girl him. I'm not being sexist. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why I thought Green, but when you asked that, that's the first thing that popped in my I mind. I thought in the writers it was always blue and It eminence. probably is. I don't know. Boy. Let's get Mariah Carey on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's available. <laughs> okay. So she talks to Michelle Er-er-ly. Is that her name? Um, Sabrina Sabrina Er-er-ly. Er-er-ly. <laughs>
1: Sabrina, Michelle, whatever. You know. That was close. <laughs> so she goes on the Slate podcast. And Slate asks, did they respond about this? They're asking her about the accused rapist. Yeah. Did they respond about this? Did they deny it? What was their response to the allegations? Early. There was never a need for a response until I stepped in, apparently, because it wasn't until I started asking questions that the university put them under some kind of investigation, or so they said. It was unclear to me whether there was actually an investigation. The university said they were under investigation, but when I spoke to the Pi Psi Cap- Pi chapter and also to the Pi Psi national representative, both of them said they were not aware of any kind of university investigation. Slate. But did the boys say anything to you? The thing about it is that everybody in the story seems to know who they are. Erdely. There's no doubt that people seem to know who these people are. I would speculate that life inside a frat house is a probably, you know, you have this kind of communal life where everybody is sort of sharing information. People are living lives closely with one another, and it seems impossible to imagine that people didn't know about this. Slate. Did they try to contact you? Did you try and call them? Was there any communication between you and them? Erdly. Yeah, I reached out to them in multiple ways. They were kind of hard to get in touch with because their contact page was pretty outdated. But I wound up speaking with their local president who sent me an email. And then I talked with their national guy who's kind of like their national crisis manager. Slate. But not the actual boy. Yeah. Erdly. They were both helpful in their own way, I guess. All they said was they both claimed (laughs) Whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, whoa. Hold the fucking phone. No, no, Brandy. Let's just charge on through. (laughs) That's exactly what she just did. She didn't answer their question at all. And I'd like to go back a couple questions. How many times did she say investigation in Uh her first answer? Uh (laughs) That's, oh, shit. Oh, shit. (laughs) Word vomit. Oh my gosh! Okay, so they say. D- did you talk to the boys? And she's like, and so then I was talking to the chapter guy, and he says, "So I tried out this new shampoo, <laughs> exactly. and it's great." And oh, what the fuck? Yeah, did she
1: fabricate this whole article. We'll we'll get more into like what exactly happened.
0: Oh my! But God. for now, and. Again, as a former reporter, this is fucking insane. Okay, so at the very least, she only interviewed one side of right this. Which,
1: anytime you're going to do an article that... Even if you're using pseudonyms. Yeah. Which, pseudonyms, I think, are stupid because in... In relatively small communities, everybody knows who you're talking yeah. about anyway. Yeah. But you've got to at least give somebody a chance yeah. to respond, even if they slam the door in your face and they say no yes. comment. Yes. So, again, the media is circling all around this story. Yeah. The Washington Post ripped Rolling Stone a new one. In an opinion piece, they wrote, If they were being cited in the story for mere drunkenness, boorish frat boy behavior, or similar collegiate misdemeanors, then there'd be no harm in failing to secure their input. The charge in this piece, however is gang rape. Yeah. And so requires every possible step to reach out and interview them, including emails, phone calls, certified letters, FedEx letters, UPS letters, and if all that fails, a knock on the door. Absolutely, fucking No effort short of all that qualifies as journalism. Yes. No shit. Yes. No shit. So journalists were shocked by this, that the reporter... And a very seasoned, respected reporter failed to do something so basic.
0: Yeah. That is like... Journalism 101. That is like basicest of
1: bitches. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it wasn't just journalists who were asking questions. Mm -hmm. The fraternity obviously read the story, Mm -hmm. and they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The article said the exact date that Jackie was raped. Mm -hmm. They start going back through their files... We didn't have a party that night. <gasps> hmm And the way she described the frat house in the story wasn't accurate to the actual layout of the
0: house. Holy shit.
1: And the idea that the gang rape was some sort of pledging ritual didn't seem right either, because they don't pledge in the fall. They pledge in the spring. Oh, my gosh. And also, they were like, by the way, we would never do this as a pledging ritual. <laughs> <laughs> all the gang rapes we hold that for the spring (laughs) and that thing about Drew and Jackie meeting because they were lifeguards at the campus pool the fraternity was like none of our guys worked at the pool in 2012 holy shit meanwhile journalists dig deeper and it doesn't take them long to find the real identities of the three friends who met up with Jackie immediately after the rape Mm -hmm. guess what the three friends say that the Rolling Stone article doesn't match what they saw that night. Yes, Jackie was distraught, but she wasn't bloody, and she didn't seem injured, and she said she'd been forced to perform oral sex.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Oh, so that kind of changes mm-hmm. things. None of them weighed the social consequences of reporting the rape. They were like, "We no, we wouldn't have yeah. said that. yeah. And also, none of them were interviewed for the story. Hmm. Here's something extra fucked up in my mind. In the article, the author implied that she spoke to one of the friends, but he said he didn't want to do an interview out of loyalty to his frat. Wow. But the guy was like, that conversation never happened.
0: Holy shit.
1: So here's the thing. The reporter asked Jackie if she could talk to any of the three friends. Mm -hmm. And Jackie told her, Randall, I think was his pseudonym, Randall says, you know, oh, no, he doesn't want to be involved because out of loyalty to his frat. Yeah. So the reporter just put that
0: in. Like she had gotten that information directly from the source. Which... Was an assumption that Jackie made, not an actual quote from Randall. Well, and I think Jackie... Jackie implied that she had actually talked uh-huh. to him and he'd
1: said no. But I mean, still, you don't, yeah. you don't make it seem like you had the conversation right. with the person when you didn't. Okay. <laughs>
0: this is so. The journalist, so. Krista, <laughs> is getting so fired up.
1: It's just wrong. Yeah. And I just can't imagine being one of those students and seeing that said about you. Yeah no, I don't want to talk about this gang rape because I'm loyal to my frat. Yeah. And I'm sure there are people out there like that, but this reporter didn't know that he was like that. No. And it turns out he wasn't, because all three of these friends were like, yeah, if this reporter had come to us and said, I want to talk, we would have talked to him. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. I sounded like a gremlin when I said wow just now. (laughs)
1: why i'm so scared right now. <laughs> A few weeks after they published the, this piece, Rolling Stone issued an apology. Mm-hmm. Here's some of it. Mhm. We have come to the conclusion that we were mistaken in honoring Jackie's request to not contact the alleged assaulters to get their account. In trying to be sensitive to the unfair shame and humiliation many women feel after a sexual assault, we made a judgment, the kind of judgment reporters and editors make every day. We should have not made this agreement with Jackie, and we should have worked harder to convince her that the truth would have been better served by getting the other side of the story. These mistakes are on Rolling Stone not on Jackie. And I want to jump in here because I think I'm reading an updated version of this apology. I think in the original version, that last line was not even in there.
0: Okay, and I have to say that even with the last Uh line, they're blaming it on Jackie. Yeah.
1: Which is bullshit.
0: Yes. Yes. They blame, blame, blame on Jackie and then they say, by the way, we're not blaming Jackie. You are fucking blaming Jackie. Yeah, And I got to say, if,
1: If this reporter had talked to all these individuals and still, like, there was this mass conspiracy to lie to her, then, you know, okay, yeah, sometimes you get tricked. That wasn't the case here. Yeah. They weren't dealing with some evil mastermind. Yeah.
0: Holy shit.
1: Yes. A month after that shitty apology, and by the way, everyone was like, uh, great apology, guys. Yeah. I don't know how you managed to publish a thinly sourced story and then be arrogant about it at the same time. But well done, Rolling Stone. Yeah. A month after that, Charlottesville police announced that they couldn't find any evidence that the Rolling Stone story was true. People were pissed at the Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. It was bad journalism. And even worse, it fed into this notion that we shouldn't believe people when they say they were sexually assaulted. Absolutely. Which, by the way, false sexual assault reports are really, really low. But when a story like this comes out, people are like, oh, I know. This happens all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone turns into a gremlin. (laughs) So, Rolling Stone publisher... Shit, okay, how do you say this name when it's a dude? J-A-N-N, is it Yann? I think so. Okay, Yann Winner asked the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism to do an audit of their editorial process. And the agreement was basically, look, check out our process, we'll print whatever you find. Mm-hmm. Here's what they found. This story was a journalistic failure. Mm-hmm. And it was
0: a preventable failure. Well, I'm not a fucking journalist and I could have told you that it was yeah. a journalistic <laughs> yeah, failure. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and to me the most important thing is
1: preventable failure. Yeah. Because mistakes happen yeah. in journalism and yeah. just like in any industry. Mm-hmm. But, good God, this really could have been uh-huh. stopped.
0: Well, okay. So I don't know the process of like being a freelance journalist, submitting mm-hmm. a an article to be published, is there fact-checking
1: that yeah, goes at, into that? At a magazine of ca- this caliber, there is fact-checking. Yeah.
0: And... I mean, I've seen Almost Famous. They fact-checked yeah. the shit out of that article. <laughs> and that was 100% already accurate. <laughs> Yeah, fact checkers are more
1: common at big magazines. Uh-huh. So usually like in a small newspaper you have a copy editor, yeah, maybe
0: an editor all in one. Yeah. Um but yeah, like the smallest amount of fact checking here I feel like would have uncovered problems which then would should have led to a bigger investigation into the accuracy of the article, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Including just talking with your journalist. Yeah. Like, so would you, just like the Slate people did, of like, mm-hmm. so what'd these guys say? Yeah. And investigation, then, investigation, uh, investigation. Uh, investigation. Uh, <laughs> and then when she says that to you, you go, wait a minute, so you Hold didn't up. talk. <laughs> so the the article said, or the, the audit said basically, pseudonyms are very dangerous, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I think they should almost never be used because yeah. it's too tempting. Uh huh. You know, she wouldn't have fudged some of this stuff, I don't think. If, if she there was had... an actual name yeah. tied to it. Yeah. Yep. Because to say, oh, he wouldn't talk to me because of loyalty to his fraternity, mm-hmm. that's a lot easier to do that to someone with a fake name mm-hmm. than an actual student. Yeah. Um, the other thing they said was, you should have checked with the three friends. Duh. Yeah. Uh, the other thing they said was, you can't just ask important sources if they'd like to comment. Mm-hmm. So here's what she did. She like reached out to the fraternity, mm-hmm. reached out to the university, and said something really vague like, you know, there was a sexual assault that took place, I think she maybe even mentioned the month and the year, and
0: said, do you have a comment? Instead of asking direct questions.
1: Which, I will defend her a little on this, uh-huh. sometimes when you give too much information, you're like, giving them ammunition to try to cover stuff up or try to get out in front of the story. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if she'd been like, so-and-so, somebody says they were at a party at your frat on this date and something happened, they could have at least said we we didn't didn't have have a party party. on that date. Yeah. 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 So the report came out in April, Mm -hmm. and at that point, Rolling Stone finally retracted the article. Thank God. About damn time. Yeah, no shit. Uh, The report raised more questions, though. Would Sabrina Erdely still write for Rolling Stone? The publisher said yes. Really? Because according to him, the problem started with the source.
0: Fuck that guy! No, you cannot blame Jackie! But...
1: She was a really expert, fabulous storyteller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous.
0: It's easy to be a really excellent storyteller when you're just making shit up mm-hmm. or not backing shit up with sources. Mm-hmm. Anybody can fabricate a great story or embellish a great story. Mm-hmm. That does not make a great journalist. <laughs>
1: she might have missed her calling as a novelist. Is a, a sad
0: thing. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so everyone at Rolling Stone kept their jobs. Wow. In my opinion, again, you know, they get this audit, audit from Columbia, and it's like they don't even give a shit, uh-huh. because I think they thought they would maybe be off the hook, or maybe they didn't care. Yeah. They were just like, uh, we were outsmarted by a 21-year-old.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Come on. But this is a court podcast. Yes. So you're probably wondering, where is the court yeah, shit? Yeah,
0: bring on the court shit.
1: Hang on tight. <laughs> Wait, do I need to buckle my seatbelt? Um, in a minute, I will tell you when to buckle up. <laughs> it is nuts. You think this craziest story right now. This craziest story. <laughs> this craziest story. <laughs>
0: But is this story crazy? That too. Keep listening to find out. <laughs> Court go to let's. Here we go.
1: So do you remember UVA Associate Dean, Nicole Aramo? Yes. Who came off as an evil rape cover-upper in the
0: article. That's correct. And a non-confidential... Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> listener. <laughs> I'm also a (laughs) non-confidential listener.
1: So she sued Rolling Stone and Sabrina Erdley for $7.5 million.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I (laughs) I could see that. (laughs) She sure did.
1: She said the article made me the chief villain Uh, in this Sure fucking did. And it portrayed me as uncaring and indifferent.
0: The only people worse than her in the article were probably the three rapists. Well, five, five. rapists. And the yes. two watchers. Uh, but at least they had pseudonyms. That's <laughs> yeah, true, yeah. yes.
1: <laughs> her legal team was intense. They said, Sabrina, the writer, was more concerned about writing an article that fulfilled her preconceived narrative than she was about getting to the truth.
0: That's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds
1: the same to me, too. Yeah. She knew the type of article she wanted to write. Yeah. Now she just had to go out and find the puzzle pieces to yeah. plug it all together. Yep. And that Rolling Stone was more concerned about selling magazines than getting to the truth. Also true. Nicole also had a big issue with a photo illustration that they ran of her that went with the article. So in the original photo, Nicole is talking to a student with a blackboard behind her. Mm -hmm. And um, she's got this pin in her hand and she's holding it kind of funny. So it looks like she's giving them a thumbs up.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Rolling Stone turned that into a photo illustration
0: what? I've seen this. Have you really? I have. I don't know this case at all. I have seen this illustration, though. I was going to
1: pull it up and show it to you again. Do you want to see it again? Yeah. Okay, so just to keep explaining. Um, so in the photo illustration, it looks like she's in an office now with protesters outside, and it looks like she's giving a thumbs up to a sexual assault victim. Mm-hmm. Okay. Man. Oh, come on, Washington Post. I... I even got an account with them yesterday, and now they're being like, um, "You're gonna have to sign in." I already have an account. Damn it!
0: I must have seen a blurb or something uh, just about this lawsuit where she sues. Uh huh.
1: I cannot believe this is the first time I have ever remembered my accurate password. Wow, under pressure. I'm impressed. Okay, let me show you this. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes, I have seen this. Where Boy, I have seen wasn't this? that worth it. Is
1: there some kind of like, did somebody do a TV show on this? Or something? There has
0: to be. It has to be like a segment on a on a 2020 or something okay. like that. Okay, That has to be where I've seen this. So by this point. I watch a lot of 2020. <laughs> I don't mean to brag to you. but I, <laughs> I mean, I've seen a lot of 2020. Seen a shit ton of Dateline. A lot of 48 hours. What's the best of the crime shows? Would you say Dateline's my favorite. I agree. Yeah, although I wish,
1: I wish Dateline would get more pictures. I know that's not always in their control, but you know how they have yeah, yeah, like yeah. three pictures of yeah. the victim, and they try to trick you out by like zooming in and zooming <laughs> out, and like kind of like having it askew uh-huh. on the yeah. table. Yeah, I can see that. You're but, you're more a true fan. You're not gonna
0: say anything negative about them. I really enjoy it. You got Lester, who hosts it. Lester Holt, yes, Love Lester Holt, big fan. Lester Holt, and then if you're lucky, you get Keith Morrison. <laughs> oh my God! Oh, did he die? Really?
1: <laughs> did you ever watch the SNL yeah, with there Billy? Bill Hader? Yes, yes. That was so good. And he always looks, he does that creepy look like.
0: Oh, that's horrifying. That's horrifying. God. Which I think is kind of how we are. Like, oh, no. Did you know that Keith Morrison is Matthew Perry's stepdad Chandler from France? Yes. Really? No. Yes. How do
1: you know that? I don't know. <laughs> How do you know any of this stuff? That's amazing. Yeah. Did he raise him or like is this no. a later in life? Oh, that's later in life type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we have to stop the podcast cuz I've got to think about this. <laughs> I got to process this information. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about amazing i think i'm
0: overusing
1: the word amazing people get married
0: it's uh it's interesting there you go okay
1: so like i said by this point nicole had the full support of the university Mm -hmm. uh she had a really hard time after the article came out obviously yeah but by this point students alumni and administrators were pitching in to cover her legal fees against rolling stone they were like fuck these guys yeah as the lawsuit moves forward, the reporter had to hand over all of her notes and recorded interviews, and the stuff in her notes was pretty damning. It showed that Jackie's story had changed over time, mm-hmm. and there were other things. Jackie said that she'd gotten cut on the glass table when she was raped, and that she had scars on her back. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Sabrina was like, could I see the scars? And Jackie was like, oh, they're not distinct anymore. mm hmm and Jackie's boyfriend was right there for that conversation. He was like, I've never seen scars on your back before. hmm There was another big thing. Jackie said that two other students were gang raped at that frat house. A staff member at the university warned Sabrina that no one from the university had met these two mystery women. And, of course, Jackie couldn't provide their contact info. Mm-hmm. They also found in Sabrina's notes that she had formed a strong opinion about Nicole. She was like, these survivors love her. They think she's so great, but she's preserving the status quo. She looks like she's helping victims, but they hardly ever report after they talk to her. Okay. Are you ready for the buckle up section of this story?
0: Okay, hold on. Let me get my
1: seatbelt. Mm -hmm. Buckled. Okay, I'm ready. I'm disappointed you didn't make the click noise. <laughs> okay. This this is fucking nuts. Okay. And I thought I knew this story. I did not know this part. Before the trial, Nicole's lawyers did a lot of digging, obviously. And one of the things they dug up and dug into wasn't just what was the reporter's mindset and did Rolling Stone vet this appropriately? But did the gang rape happen in the first place? And who the hell is this Drew guy who was supposedly this ringleader? We've Mm -hmm. got to get to the bottom of this. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Before we get to that, I want to talk to you about Ryan Duffin. Mm -hmm. Ryan was one of the three friends that Jackie talked to the night of the assault. He was the one who supposedly said, oh, I'm not talking Uh out of loyalty to the fraternity. Jackie and Ryan met freshman year, and he sensed that she had a crush on him. Mm -hmm. But he didn't feel the same way. He was polite to her, but pretty clear he wasn't interested. A few days after Ryan first met Jackie, this guy named Haven Monahan started texting him. He was a junior in Jackie's chemistry class, and it was very clear that Haven was obsessed with Jackie. Couldn't stop talking about her. (laughs) She's not real. It's Jackie, right? Haven was very upset because he wanted to have a romantic relationship with Jackie, but she wasn't interested. She was hung up on some freshman guy.
0: (laughs) Oh, my
1: gosh. I'm going to read you a text from the very real Haven (laughs) to Ryan. Get this, she said she likes some other first-year guy who doesn't like her and turned her down, but she won't date me because she likes him. She can't turn me down for some nerd first-year. She said this kid is smart and funny and worth it. Oh, my God,
0: it's not even well done.
1: And you should know how many typos were in that (laughs) one. I had to stumble over that. At one point, Haven is like, Hey, man, why aren't you interested in Jackie? (laughs) You need to be nice to her. Go easy on her. She has a terminal illness. What? So he immediately texted Jackie, and she texted back, Ryan, it means I'm dying.
0: (laughs) Thank you for explaining what a terminal illness is.
1: (laughs) Brandy, you do not seem very sympathetic.
0: Because it's fucking made up, Kristen! <gasps> Haven Monahan is not a fake name! It's even a
1: terrible fake name! Haven Monahan is just a nice guy who's obsessed with a Jackie. freshman. And for some reason talks to other random freshmen about yeah. how he's obsessed. This is <laughs> Eventually she goes to that frat party with Haven Monahan. And Haven Monahan sexually assaults her. Haven Monahan is Drew from the Rolling Stone story.
0: I cannot even right now, Kristen. (laughs) She got Okay. Hold on. Hold on. What? What the fucking fuck? Yeah. She got gang raped by a person she made up. Sounds horrible, doesn't it?
1: <laughs>
0: this is crazy.
1: Well, and I should jump in and say that in light of all this, a lot of people have come forward and said they do think something happened to her. It just wasn't this. Yeah. So, I don't want to be like laughing too hard. No, no, no. I mean, this is this is
0: insanely ridiculous. There's a chance something really did happen to her. Horrible did happen to her, but but um, not by Haven Monahan or whatever the fuck his name is, because he does not exist. Brandy,
1: how dare you? I'm (laughs) going to read you some more stuff, and you're going to bite your tongue. I doubt
0: it. (laughs) I am glad that I had my (laughs) seatbelt (laughs) buckle.
1: So Jackie quickly forgave Haven for what he did to her. Which is easy to do when it didn't when it happen. Didn't happen. <laughs> um, but after a while, Ryan got suspicious. He asked her basically, Does Haven Monahan really exist? And she got pissed. She was like,
0: Yeah, because she's don't... getting called out on her bullshit. Nobody likes that. I don't yeah. like that. Me either.
1: <laughs> so nothing ever happened between Ryan and Jackie. And But these texts and emails were gathered by Nicole's legal team in this search for the real perpetrator. <sighs> so they start looking into Haven Monahan. Weird. Does he have the same phone number as Jackie? Um, it's an internet phone number. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. There's a whole bunch of stuff, but yada, yada, yada. No one in the history of UVA has had the name Haven Monahan. Yeah,
0: because nobody fucking exists with the name Haven Monahan. You want to hear something funny?
1: (laughs) CNN even looked up to see if anyone in the United States had that name. No one has that name.
0: it's a terrible fucking name. (laughs) And Name him John fucking Smith or something. Yes. We've got a lot of advice. 800 million John Smiths.
1: The picture Haven sent of himself to Ryan was actually the picture of a guy Jackie went to high school with who she barely knows. Which, now this had to be weird for him, because then they go and track that guy down. Oh, God! And he has to verify, uh, yeah, that's me. But I am not Haven Monty.
0: And I haven't talked
1: to Jackie in years and yeah. barely talked to her when I did know yeah. her.
0: Holy crap. Oh, my gosh.
1: So... They submitted court documents stating that Haven Monahan was completely fake. The whole thing started because Jackie was catfishing Ryan. Mm-hmm. Ryan later said, Had any of us been contacted, it never would have blown up like this. It's weird to think that an entire portion of my life was consumed by these events that, looking back, looks so dumb. Given the way everything's turned out, I don't think that's the way I want to describe it, but I had a lot of naivete three years ago. It's just... Weird all around.
0: I don't know that weird describes it. <laughs> I I I get it though. Like you would just be like, holy holy shit, crap. what
1: is this? This this insane lie that I was told yeah. a million years ago is now in Rolling Stone and it's like the most popular article yeah. of the moment. Yeah. Oh God. So the lawsuit's moving forward. They get a jury of eight women and two men. Mm-hmm. The loss. The trial lasted two weeks. The jury watched tape depositions from Jackie, um, which her lawyers tried to be like, "No, don't depose her." But the judge was like, "Yeah, we're going to yeah, depose her. Yeah, we're going to have to depose her." Sorry. Um, they also deposed the three friends. Ryan had to testify about the catfishing, which had to be. Pretty fucking weird, too. Here I am in a court of law. (laughs) Talking about being catfish. Oh my gosh. This was kind of a tough case because Nicole was considered a limited purpose public figure. Uh Uh-huh. And you know, you can't, You can't say whatever you want about a private person, but public figures, you you have a lot more leeway. Yeah. And so her lawyers wanted to prove that the author and that Rolling Stone acted with actual malice. Mm -hmm. And that requires that the publisher must either have known that the information was false or just had to have had a reckless disregard for the truth. Which I think they did. Uh, I agree. (laughs) Nicole took the stand and she cried as she talked. She talked about how she lost self-confidence in her job after the article mm-hmm. came out. I mean, obviously, when you're basically painted as a she-devil. Yep. Who's like, he mm, got raped? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. She was especially hurt thumbs by... Up. Yeah. <laughs> <thumbs up. laughs> she was especially hurt by a line in the article where Jackie told the author that Nicole said, nobody wants to send their daughter to a rape school. Nicole was like, I never said that. Uh-huh. I wouldn't have said that. Yeah. Although it is true, no one no wants, wants to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I've got a choice personally. Um, her testimony was so moving that a few members of the jury cried. Wow. In case you wonder where they're leaning. <laughs> Rolling Stone's lawyers were like, but did the article really damage your reputation? Because you've gotten two raises since it was published, mm-hmm. and now you're making $113,000 a year. You're fine. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Department of Education backs up our findings about how bad you guys are at handling sexual assault cases. Which is, to me, the frustrating thing about this, because there was
0: a lot of this article that was very valid and true. Well, and brought to light, yeah, good, like, things that needed to be brought to light. That, yeah, yeah was then set the
1: movement back
0: a couple decades and lit everything in a
1: dumpster fire. Yes,
0: exactly. (sighs) It was like two steps forward, 5,000 steps back. Two steps forward, then they got in a train (laughs) (laughs) in the opposite direction. (laughs) If they left the station at 8.34 (laughs) a.m.
1: And then they totally fucked themselves. (laughs) So Rolling Stone tried to paint themselves as victims of a hoax.
0: At one point, they were... No, they don't get to be victims because they have a duty as a publication to fact check and make sure that they are... But what if the story they've got
1: right now is really, really good? No! <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that a lot of people said was like, yeah, it was a really good story. It was yeah. a perfect story. And like, a little too perfect. Yeah.
0: Uh.
1: At one point, their attorney, Scott Sexton, said, this young woman was very good at telling this story. Dina Ramo believed her. Yet we are the ones being tried, in a sense, for having believed her. And at that point, some of the members of the jury cried, too. Mm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you make that part up? Yes.
1: (laughs) Can you imagine feeling sorry for them? (laughs) No! (laughs) Oh, you guys were (sighs) tricked. And I just want to say about this. That woman's job, I think, is when someone says they were sexually assaulted, yeah, you do move forward believing them, and you say, "Here are your options." Yeah, and that's when things kind of get vetted, and yeah, you, know, you make some absolutely. decisions. Absolutely, but if you're in that position, it's not your job to be like, "Really? Are really, really?" Okay, yeah. I'm going to go talk to all your friends and try to confirm everything. Yeah, that's a reporter's job. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> So in closing arguments, Nicole's attorney pointed to the findings in the Columbia School of Journalism's audit. Uh (laughs) Maybe Rolling Stone shouldn't have done that. (laughs) (laughs) He was basically like, the world of good journalism agrees that this could have been avoided.
0: Could have, should have been avoided, yes.
1: Bottom line, this was totally avoidable. 100%. They weren't tricked by some mastermind. No. (laughs) You know, yeah. Mm -mm. An attorney for Rolling Stone argued that Basically, this was the worst thing that has ever happened to Rolling Stone. He said that Sabrina Erdley lost her job and her reputation, she'll never write again. He said that Rolling Stone suffered.
0: Oh. oh, oh so terrible for
1: them. <sighs> <sighs> Let me compose myself. So the jury deliberated for 2 hours. Mm-hmm. What do you think? They Guilty! Can- oh,
0: Brandy. My goodness. Fucking give her a bunch of money. Give her all 7.5 million or whatever she's looking for. She did not get that much. No. Because they had to throw out
1: a few things here and there. I, it's a really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High burden. Yeah. I didn't use any of those words right. That's fine. High bar is yeah, what there I meant.
0: Yeah, <laughs> To bear when you're having when to you're meet super a bar high, that high and you're trying to read and your podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and all you want are Cheetos and you're just driving for the bars. <laughs> so they found that Sabrina Erdley was liable for $2 million and mm-hmm. that Rolling Stone and Winter Media were liable for $1 million. They said that Sabrina mm. did act with actual malice and that Rolling Stone and Winter Media defamed her. The jury basically said that when Rolling Stone issued their initial apology about the article in December, they should have taken the article down. Yeah. But they kept
0: it up till April and that was just wrong. Uh, I think that Rolling Stone should have been liable for more than the author of the article. Mm, I don't.
1: Why do you think so? Because
0: it wouldn't have reached as many people had Rolling Stone not published it. That's a good point. They are the reason it reached 2.7 million people. That's a good point. If she had posted it on her fucking blog. Yeah. I think, though...
1: I don't know. It's it's hard to me because I think you do have to put a certain amount of trust in your reporters. And the mistakes she made... Mm I don't even want to call them mistakes... Again, they are the most basic thing. Yeah. Particularly if you're going to paint somebody in a negative light, mm-hmm. you have to give them an opportunity yeah. to talk to you. And yeah. I think I think these lawyers for Nicole were completely correct that she had in her head the article she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And there were other rape survivors on campus who she could have talked to, mm-hmm. but their stories weren't as mm-hmm. gut-wrenching. And I mean... I think she really, really fucked
0: up. Yeah, I don't know. I do too. I think she really, really fucked up, but... You think that Rolling Stone... Rolling Stone is the reason it made such a big impact. Yeah. Because they brought the story to the masses.
1: But should... But do you think that they had a reckless disregard for the truth? I do. By not fact-checking it. Well, they did fact-check it not they to just the degree they should it have with
0: Jackie. Yeah. Yeah. I think they have a a bigger responsibility to when they're putting out a what it, a reputable publication, yeah. They have a duty to ensure that what they're putting out is the truth. Yeah. So I think they should have been held liable for more. Okay, let's the, change it right now. Let's change is it. What I'm getting at here. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: to wrap up, the fraternity also sued Rolling Stone for twenty five million dollars. Wow! Now this is going to make you mad, but they settled for one point six five million. I, I mean, I
0: think they deserved more than that. I do too. Um, and I think that if it would have gone to trial, they probably would have been awarded more oh, from the yeah. jury. Um but i don't know i think it's a it's a lot of money for, yeah but I, it's not enough But I, I think 25 million is too much
1: i i agree with that um i,
0: I don't just, know what i would think is the right amount but
1: i don't either and i guess i think of like it's such a huge organization Yeah, 1.65 million really doesn't seem Does like much seem, at yeah. all yeah yeah that's true so in conclusion this was a shit show. Fuck. It was um, an example of some really bad journalism. And it set back, I think, sexual assault survivors in being believed. hmm And, um, yeah. What a mess. What?
0: Ramifications. Mm-hmm. If any, do you think there should be against Jackie? Hmm.
1: Um, honestly? It's
0: a tough question.
1: Well, I'm, and I'm struggling with my answer because I want to say none. Uh Uh-huh. And part of that is because when I worked at my little rinky-dink newspaper, we would get tips from people all the time about scandalous stories. Uh And it's your job to vet that stuff. Because people people will tell all kinds of crazy stories, and sometimes not even... Not even false stories, but stuff
0: that you just can't verify. So your argument is that it's not her fault that her lie blew up to this level. Yeah, because I'm telling yeah. you, like,
1: every day... I believe ...people it. call in and yeah. they have some story that they think deserves to be covered. And, yeah. I mean, that's why journalists exist, in yeah. part, is to, like, try to figure out, okay, well, what's the truth here? And yeah. does a story really need to be written? Yeah. And I hope nothing really happened to Jackie. Yeah. Partly so that I can feel good about laughing at this catfishing
0: thing. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's ridiculous. What I learned from this is Mm. that if you're going to catfish somebody, you got (laughs) to come up with a more realistic name. (laughs) you got to come up with a better name. Yeah. And then when Rolling
1: Stone (laughs) comes and wants to do an interview, you say, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. And I think... I think for Jackie, like, so she was set up for this interview by a staff member who had heard mm-hmm. this story. And so the staff member connected, you know, Jackie to Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that should have been Jackie's point where she was like, no. But I think once she got the journalist to agree mm-hmm. to use pseudonyms. Yeah, she's
0: like, I can make this. She,
1: Yeah, I, then I'm
0: fine. I'm fine, yeah. Yeesh. What do you think Jackie's punishment should have been, if anything? You know, I don't know. I feel like because I don't know if anything really happened to her.
1: Mhm. Yeah,
0: that's where I hesitate to say if anything should.
1: And that's the that's because the I thing do
0: that's... think that there should be ramifications for falsifying a rape report, because it's the reason that people aren't believed. Yeah, sometimes I mean, it doesn't false reporting doesn't happen that often. No, it doesn't. But it really doesn't. But if a false report blows up to this level. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know.
1: It like but, you said, it sets. But then what if that scares people out does. of reporting even more? Because they're like, what if nobody believes me, which is likely? Yes. And then people say it's a false report. And then I I know yeah. that's what that's exactly it. Yeah, it's
0: terrible. Yeah. Oh, yikes! That was crazy. Yeah, with the exception of like that illustration, I didn't know anything about that case.
1: See, I <laughs> I didn't know the catfishing part. Yeah, i I remember reading that article and just being outraged yeah. about it. Yeah, and then when initially people were like, "I don't know if this is truth," I I was thinking. How dare they not believe this mm-hmm. young woman? Well, then more stuff comes <laughs> out. I
0: was like, "Oh." You're okay. Like, "Oh shit. <laughs> Never mind.
1: I take it back."
0: Oh yeah. gosh. That was so crazy. Yeah. Man. Hmm. In my notes this
1: morning, I was so glad I caught this error. I accidentally called him Haven, Montana at one point. <laughs> Which is even more fake. <laughs> I wish that was. Just I was thinking Hannah Montana, yeah. <laughs> another fake name, but anyway. Okay, I'm very excited. Are you ready for this? For this? Yes, yes.
0: You've teased me yeah. for weeks. So, little, I'm going to start with a couple little disclaimers here. Okay. First of all, I was on a theme of old timey kidnappings. Mm-hmm. So, next week I will return you to our regularly scheduled. Old timey kidnapping. Uh But I had to cover this case as soon as it finished. And like Wednesday, last Wednesday, this case went to the jury. And so at like five o'clock in the Uh evening, and they came back with a verdict very quickly. So I was like.
1: You know what's a shame is we're recording this
0: so far ahead. I know. People won't know how timely you're being right now. No, but I'm being very timely. (laughs) I will also, my next disclaimer. Is that because this is such a fresh one, Uh to use your term. (laughs) Uh You owe me money now. It was difficult to put an episode together because I had to write the fucking thing myself. Because there was no one (gasps) article that was like overarching through the whole thing. Uh I had to piece it together from all these fucking reports. And I am not a writer. So if this fucking sucks, I am sorry. (laughs) We will judge you big time. (laughs) And we'll put it in the Rolling Stone. That's right. <laughs> it's usually, you know, I just can find these good articles and copy and paste some uh-huh. stuff from them, add in a little tidbits of my own here and there. A little flair. Like just sprinkle a little flair on top. I had to fucking write this whole thing myself. So. That's a shame. That is a shame. <laughs> I did. <laughs> She's like sniffing my toes. <laughs> Did you pass the sniff test? I guess I did. She's still sitting here. So um, I did get my information from this um, from reports by Lori Fulbright and Taylor Newcomb for News on Six, which is a Tulsa area news station. Okay. And then also articles in the Tulsa World. I'm so excited. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. For the Bever Finally. Finally. It's July 22nd, 2015. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, which is a city of approximately 100,000 people just southeast of Tulsa. Gotcha. It's shortly before midnight. A call comes in to the 911 dispatch center. (laughs) Fucking nailed it. Dispatcher? (laughs) The unidentified caller says... My brother is attacking my family. Then there is a commotion in the background and the line goes dead. Oh! After a return call goes unanswered, dispatchers trace the call and send police to the address. It's a large home in a quiet upscale neighborhood. Upon arrival at the address, police immediately notice blood on the front porch of the home. As the officers reached the front door, they, will, they were able to hear faint moans for help coming from inside and forced entry into the home. Inside, the officers were met with a gruesome scene. In the foyer, they found the 13-year-old daughter of April and David Bever. So a note here, she is named online by some news sources, But in court records, she's identified only by her initials, so I'm not going to call her by her name. Yeah. Okay, good call. Um, She was covered in blood.
1: Mm.
0: Her throat and stomach had been slit open. Oh, God. And she was suffering from multiple stab wounds to her arms and chest. (sighs) But she was alive. What? How? Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Officers immediately called for medical assistance and backup, and as they... Um, so, and they pull her from the house. They mm-hmm. pull her out of the house. They don't know what the fuck's going on in there yet. And so they pull her out of the house into the front yard, wait for medical crews to get there, and then they go back in. The further they get into the home, the worse it gets. There's blood everywhere the walls, the floors, the ceilings. There are knives everywhere. There are various weapons, including a hatchet, strewn throughout the scene.
1: By the way, I think in this podcast, the sentence you say the most is,
0: there was blood everywhere. Everywhere. I really like to paint a picture. I know you do. (laughs) And you like a bloody one. I do. I do. I like stabbings and I like them to be bloody. Sure. So (laughs) this checks both those boxes. No wonder I liked this case so much. So there's blood fucking everywhere, Kristen. (laughs) And there were several more victims. Mm. In all, police located four more victims, all deceased. Wow. So the 13-year-old was the only survivor. Mm -hmm. David Bever, 52, suffered at least 28 stab wounds to the torso, face, neck, arm, and hand. Oh, God. April Bever, 48, had at least 48 stab wounds to the head, neck, torso, arm, and hands. Daniel Bever, 12, oh,
1: was stabbed
0: no. nine times to the oh. back, shoulder, and chest, and he was the 911 caller. Oh my God. Oh. So he had made the call. He had locked himself in a room, made the call, and like as the uh. attacker made entry into the room, was when the line went dead. Christopher Bever, seven. No, no. Oh my God. Why do you do this? Had six stab wounds to the back, chest, shoulder, and leg. The final victim. he He was seven.
1: Oh my God.
0: The final victim was Victoria Bever, age five.
1: Oh my God.
0: She had 18 stab wounds. What? To her neck, chest, back, and upper arm. Police discovered a two year old girl. No,
1: oh my God.
0: The youngest Bever, in an upstairs bedroom, asleep in her crib, oh. completely unharmed. Oh my God. She'd slept through the whole thing. Whoa. Only 18 year old Robert Bever and 16 year old Michael Bever were unaccounted for. And though she was critically injured, the 13 year old Bever girl. Was able to identify her brothers as the family's attackers. Oh my gosh! Police believed that the brothers had escaped out the back of the house upon their arrival, so they brought in canine units to search the wooded area behind the home. Mm-hmm. A short time later, the boys were located in the woods and were taken into custody without incident. The city of Broken Arrow, which averages less than one homicide a year, was shaken by the brutal no crime. No kidding. Police called it the worst criminal event in the community's history.
1: I would say easily, I'm yes.
0: sure. But neighbors said something always seemed off at the Bever home. David Bever worked in the computer industry while April stayed home with the kids who were homeschooled. Okay. <laughs> Explain the look. <laughs> Did like a little head tilt and an eyebrow raise. Like, we all know what that homeschooled, means. Homeschooled, eh? Eesh. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Great. So you're saying they brought this on themselves Not by homeschooling? What I'm Not at all what I'm saying. Just.
0: You always wonder about those homeschooled ones. I mm-hmm. don't know. <laughs> Um, neighbors said they occasionally saw the kids outside, but only if April was with them and that they weren't allowed to play with any of the other kids in the neighborhood. Okay. Yeah, that's not good. Um, neighbors also noted that the family seemed very isolated to the point that they appeared to avoid community events. Mm. Um, so in all there were seven Bever children, four boys and three girls. The youngest The two-year-old that was um, found unharmed was actually, like, a miracle baby. She was born at, like, 23 weeks, weighing, like, a pound. Oh, my. And then survived. Wow. Yeah. And was a perfectly healthy two-year-old by the time that this happened. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, back to... Back to the day of the crime. The brothers were taken into custody in the early morning hours of Thursday, July 3rd, 2015. And by that evening, Robert Bever had given a full confession. He walked investigators through the events of the evening and showed little remorse as he recounted how he brutally murdered five members of his family and critically wounded the 6th. He also told investigators that these murders were just the beginning and that he had planned a series of killings outside of the family. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately, both Robert and Michael were charged with five counts of first-degree murder and one count of assault and battery with intent to kill for the assault on the surviving sister. Prosecutors announced that they would be trying Michael as an adult, but because he was 16, he would be spared the death penalty. After months of hearings and motions to suppress Robert's confession in court, the prosecution was still weighing the decision on whether to seek the death penalty against him. Mm -hmm. He was 18 at the time of the murder, so he was an adult. And they were seriously considering seeking the death penalty.
1: Well, sure. And it's Oklahoma. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. Um, Finally, in July of 2016, the prosecution approached Robert with a deal. If he would plead guilty to all charges, he would avoid the death penalty and be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. Robert took the deal. Uh, yeah, wise choice. Yeah, District Attorney um, Steve Coonsweiler said the decision to offer Robert the deal was a tough one, but ultimately he felt it was the right decision for their surviving siblings. And this is what That's he said. That's actually
1: a good point. Yeah,
0: so this is what he said, and I think this makes a lot of sense. The single most important factor in my decision to resolve this case centered upon the needs of the surviving two children who lost everything in their lives. Those children deserve to be able to move on with their lives as best they can without the continued torment of a trial and decades of appeals that a death penalty case would most likely bring. Yep. While I believe that Robert Bever deserves the death penalty for his savage actions, I feared that a death penalty prosecution would result in his teenage sister being forced to recount and relive the brutal details of the carnage that her brothers wrought again and again. The toddler sister, who mercifully was asleep and did not witness the horror, would grow up learning details of the carnage in repeated court hearings that could easily stretch into her teen years and beyond.
1: That is such a good point. Yeah.
0: The decision on how to proceed with this case rests upon my shoulders entirely, and I take responsibility for the decisions that I make. The surviving teenage child requested that I make sure Robert Bever never gets out of prison. His plea and sentence guarantees that he will spend the rest of his days left to his demons behind the walls of a penitentiary where he will never draw a breath of free air again.
1: Mm.
0: I I think that's such a valid, yeah valid argument. So Robert pleads guilty. Okay. He's sentenced to life in prison without parole. So that leaves Michael at the same hearing where Robert entered his guilty plea, Michael Bevers lawyer filed a motion to have the charges against Michael dismissed. They argued that it was unconstitutional for Michael, a 16 year old to be tried as an adult, because should he be convicted, he could be sentenced to life in prison without parole, which they argued was basically a death sentence. The judge denied this motion and entered a not guilty plea on Michael's behalf when he refused to enter a plea. I think that's I such a weird move. I have covered yeah. a couple cases recently where they've refused to enter a plea. It's such a weird what thing. What does that
1: accomplish? I have
0: no idea. Because you know they're just going to put something in. Yeah. Yeah. But this is like, I think the third case that I've covered huh. where they've refused, someone has refused to enter a plea. And
1: so they think they'll be like, well, okay, now All right, you're, I guess free, to you're go.
0: free to go. <laughs> Damn it, he didn't play along. Yes. The road to Michael's trial would be a lengthy one. Both sides weighed how they would argue the case. Um, it was believed early on that the defense would argue that Michael was not guilty by reason of insanity, as it was found that Robert was suffering from severe mental illness in prison. Mm-hmm. And he had never received any mental health care prior to his incarceration. In fact, he said he'd never even seen a general practitioner for basic medical care.
1: That does not surprise me at all. Yeah. Given what the neighbors said. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yep. But as the trial neared, the defense revealed that they would not be seeking an insanity defense. Instead, they would offer a defense focusing on Michael's limited participation in the killings.
1: Oh, I thought they were going to argue like, oh, he was under the influence of this older brother. And 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 they kind of
0: do. OK. They kind of do. Finally, in April of 2018, almost three years after the murder. So that's just how long these like yeah. proceedings take to actually get to the trial, which is just crazy to me. Like, oh, man, you're supposed to have a right to a speedy trial and sitting there for three years waiting for it to happen. Yeah, that just that's seems, incredible. Yeah, it seems crazy to me. So in April of 2018, jury selection began for Michael Bevers' trial. Attorneys for both sides spent two and a half days questioning potential jurors on issues such as pre-trial publicity, the available range of punishment, and their attitude attitudes towards homeschooling. Oh, and that was a big that was a big sticking point for the defense. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of interesting things um, here they pulled, like, the largest jury pool in, in like, the history of a trial mm-hmm. here in this, in, like, the Tulsa County area or whatever. Over 100 people were pulled for this jury pool. And, like, of them, only, like, three had never heard of the case. Uh-huh. And so they had to, they actually had to move the jury questioning into a different courtroom than where the actual trial would take place because they couldn't fit everybody to do this jury questioning. Both sides warned the jurors that the trial would be a really tough one to hear. Well, yeah. One prospective juror was dismissed after he learned that the youngest victim was five, and he said he didn't want to see any photos of slaughtered children.
1: I'm surprised you can say that. I am too. Just because, you know, Norman got called for jury duty Mm -hmm. and the judge was like, I don't want to hear any excuses. This is your civic duty, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm surprised it was that easy for someone to get out of it. I am
0: guessing that he was dismissed by the defense after stating that opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're right.
1: Yeah. I'm sure you are.
0: That would be my guess. Another prospective juror was seen crying in the courthouse hall after being dismissed. Like it's a it's a terrible case. It's a horrible scene. You've got small children yeah. who were brutally murdered. It was rough. Yeah. Ultimately a panel of eleven women, um yeah. Eleven women and three men. Wow. So twelve jurors and two alternates uh-huh. were seated. I was surprised that it was so female heavy. I'm just going to say. Yeah. Do you think maybe both sides wanted women? I think both sides probably would think, I think it's easy for both sides to see places where women would be more sympathetic to Mm -hmm. their case. I also wondered when you said they were
1: nervous about how people felt about homeschooling. Like, I can see how if you were kind of, well, like if you had your reaction to homeschooling, (laughs) maybe you'd be more inclined to be like, these parents put them in an environment mm-hmm. that's not anything like the real world, and so mm-hmm. then maybe you'd be more sympathetic.
0: Yeah, yes, which I think is what kind of the defense was leaning on. Okay, yeah. Okay.
1: So they so weirdly, you think they wanted people who weren't cool mm-hmm. with homeschool? Oh man, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep, because that's very much, and I'll get into it a little bit. I don't go into a lot, but that's very much one of like the defense's uh sticking points was that like these kids were isolated from everybody okay yeah yeah all right all right yeah so opening statements took place on april 20th 2018 oh my god You were so high at the time. Uh, So I don't even remember it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was looking for that bar you were talking about earlier. (laughs) Good luck, man. (laughs) Um, The DA laid out the sequence of events that led to the brutal attack on the Bever family, including a conversation Michael had with his 13-year-old sister a year before the attack where he told her that he and Robert were planning to kill the family and he asked her to join them. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. The DA also said in opening arguments that contrary to the defense's planned argument that Michael was not. Oh, so sorry. I put the emphasis on the wrong. (laughs) The DA also argued that contrary to the defense's planned argument that Michael was not an active participant in the actual stabbings, That DNA analysis of Knive's victims and his own clothing would show that he was directly involved. Yeah. In his opening statement, Chief Public Defender Corbin Brewster told the court that Michael only participated in the killings with Robert because he believed it was kill or be killed. Mm -hmm. He said Michael's first words to the police upon being arrested were, I hope they're okay. Uh, Which if you came out of that fucking house, you know that they're not okay. Yeah. And he argued that Michael lived an isolated life where Robert was his only friend. Mm -hmm. The prosecution's star witness was the surviving Bever sister, now 16. So, gosh, I think this is rough because it was the whole reason they did the plea deal Uh for Robert was to keep her from having to testify. And here she is having to testify against Michael. Yeah. Um, To avoid being in the same room with her attacker, she testified in another courtroom and the testimony was shown to the jury on a TV. Yeah. She recalled that on the night of the murders, the family had gone out bowling, come home, had dinner together. And after dinner, she'd gone into her brother's room to tell them that their mom wanted them to clean up the kitchen. When she walked into the room, she said she heard one of the brothers say, are we going to do this now? And that Robert and Michael were dressed in protective body armor. Oh, my God. But apparently they wore this stuff a lot. It was something they collected. And so it wasn't anything that was, like, alarming to her.
1: Yeah, they were a couple of weirdos.
0: Yeah. She said Michael called her over to show her something on his computer. And that was when Robert walked up behind her, slit her throat, (gasps) and slit her open across the stomach. She testified that she felt blood pouring out of her throat and that she had a metallic taste in her mouth. Oh, my God. She said that after a moment of confusion over what had happened, she began screaming. It was then that Robert began stabbing her in the chest, arms, and neck. What the fuck? Their mother, April, came in the room and tried to intervene, and Robert attacked her, too.
1: Oh,
0: It's fucking terrible. Yeah. The teenage girl attempted to run from the house for help and set off the alarm upon exiting the front door. But she collapsed on the front porch and Michael pulled her back into the house. Oh. Michael also managed to disarm the security system before an alert was sent to the monitoring company and the police were alerted. Of course. She said she remembered laying in the foyer, fading in and fading out, and then heard a knock at the door and realized it was a police officer, and she moaned for help. She said the next thing she remembered was waking up in the hospital. I think that that had to be some powerful testimony. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard to hear secondhand. No shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, man, thank goodness she was allowed to sit in another courtroom and they were able to, because that would have just been, I think, cruel and unusual punishment to make her sit up in front of her brother. No kidding. That'd be horrible. It it would be horrible. So in my opinion, the prosecutor's next most powerful witness was the crime scene investigator who... um, photographed the scene. Ugh. Though the defense successfully argued to keep autopsy photos out of court. So the judge agreed with the defense that there was no question as to whether or not the family was stabbed. So <laughs> yeah. autopsy photos were eliminated. They weren't allowed to be brought up in court. The jury did see more than 200 crime scene photos oh, showing the victims covered in blood.
1: Ugh.
0: They also showed the surviving sister's injuries photographed in the hospital. The crime scene photographer took the stand and testified that he had taken some 600 photos of the crime scene and that he had previously processed upwards of 1,500 crime scenes. He walked jurors through photos of the scene, and when he got to a photo of seven year old Christopher and five year old Victoria, huddled on the floor of the bathroom covered in blood mm. he broke down crying on the stand
1: oh my oh. he had to
0: leave the courtroom to collect himself before he could continue oh. that's how brutal this crime scene was yeah someone who had processed 1500 crime scenes
1: broke down broke crime.
0: down I don't blame him.
1: I don't don't either. They said
0: that the jury was crying. I mean, it was just terrible. Yeah. They, I think, had to call a recess and everybody had to kind of gather themselves before they could continue on. Oh, my God. And that, I think Michael was crying as well.
1: You fucking better be.
0: Right? This isn't really that funny of a case, it turns out. (laughs)
1: Isn't it funny how well do these cases? And then we're like, "Oh shit, this yeah, is a this is bummer. horrible."
0: <laughs> this maybe is maybe if I put like a little little pep on it. And then and then the prosecution also called DNA expert Grace Helms. No, Brandy. <laughs> this is just horrible. It's fucking terrible. Yeah. Ugh. So DNA expert Grace Helms <laughs> testified that she found Michael Bevers' DNA on the handle of a knife. Mm-hmm. The blade of that same knife had the blood of David, Daniel, and Christopher Bever oh, on it. Oh, well, okay. Supporting the prosecution's claim that Michael actually did play a part yep. in the stabbings. And directly contradicting the argument of the defense that while he had been present, he hadn't actually had a hands-on role. <laughs> Why did you do that? <laughs> I, had to, I had to liven it up. <laughs> <laughs> that was you livening it up. Yeah, that the best I could do. Boy, thank you
1: for that. <laughs> now we're all feeling good. Now we're all laughing.
0: After calling more than 13 witnesses over several days, the prosecution rested. The defense then called their star witness. Who do you think their star witness is? The Big Bad Brother, right? Yeah. Robert Bever took the stand in his brother's defense. Do you like how bad I am with names? (laughs) (laughs) The Big Bad Brother. (laughs) Up to this point, Michael Bever's defense had repeatedly blamed Robert for most, if not all, of the bloodshed. And Robert accepted this blame. Mm -hmm. He told jurors that he did all of the stabbing and slashing and said he never saw Michael attack anyone. I'm not denying that we acted together, he told the court, but we acted in our own ways. I think meaning, you know, he pulled the sister back in, he turned the alarm off, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. So he did help, but he says that he never that Michael didn't do any of the actual stabbing. Mm. Um, Wearing a prison jumpsuit and sporting a LWOP5 knuckle tattoo.
1: What does that mean?
0: Life without parole times five. Ew. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Uh, Robert began his testimony by describing a lonely And sometimes violent childhood for both him and Michael, who he said had a speech impediment and also likely had dyslexia. What? He's. uh, (laughs) That's just just his own take on it, apparently. Wow, great. We could go months without leaving the house except to buy groceries, Robert said, adding that his parents often talked about. The rapture and the biblical apocalypse as a retribution thing for everything they hated about the world. When asked by defense attorney Brewster if he had an interest in mass killings and the apocalypse, Robert cracked a smile, laughed a little, and said, "I took an interest in it. Yes. Ew. Yeah. Ugh. I dabble. yes." <laughs> <Yuck. laughs> Um, And one article that I read, like, they made a good point. Like, he's heavily medicated by this point. So, like, if this is how he is on the stand, heavily medicated. Yeah. Imagine how he was with just rampant mental illness and no medical care of any kind.
1: Mm.
0: It's a terrifying thought.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's sad for him, I think, a little bit. Yeah. Sad for everybody. It really is. Yes. Yeah. I'm still stuck
1: on that tattoo.
0: (laughs) You're not planning on getting one a knuckle knuckle tattoo anytime soon? It's
1: just the pride you have to feel to get that. Oh, it's
0: complete pride. Because people don't tattoo, like, bedwetter or something on themselves. Please don't call out my tattoos (laughs) on this podcast, Kristen.
1: Brandy's got all her insecurities (laughs) in a big (laughs) neck tattoo that's why she wears her hair down so
0: much <laughs> at least I don't have a chest tattoo have we talked
1: about that on the podcast? I don't podcast? think so okay so to seriously lighten things up yes like I want to say a month ago my friend Christina yeah. texted me and asked me if I got a chest tattoo <laughs> Which is the most ridiculous question I've ever been texted? Because I'm afraid of needles. I can barely get like just normal vaccinations. Like, and a chest tattoo. Yeah. Okay, it's pretty extreme. So I was like, "What are you talking about?" She said she went to our website. This is all just a plug the for the to website. Get
0: people to go to our website. <laughs> this never happened. It's all just.
1: And she was like, "Yeah, it looks like you've got a chest tattoo." Okay, turns out she was just seeing part of my gray cardigan well, she's sweater. Like the
0: farthest thing from a chest tattoo. It's like one extreme to the other.
1: No, my gray cardigan is very hardcore, Brandy.
0: Super hardcore gray cardigan.
1: I go hard. My gray cardigan.
0: it's a knuckle tattoo for you oh my god yeah
1: (laughs) what would be the lamest knuckle tattoo you could get oh man I don't
0: even know just love safe driver
1: (laughs) safe driver Uh, responsible citizen you
0: can see it when you're at two (laughs) two.
1: (laughs) it's a reminder and I'm proud of it
0: (laughs) oh god Maybe we should get back to this horrible trial. I really
1: enjoyed talking about (laughs) tattoos that I don't have for a few minutes so that we could not talk about stabbings, but here we
0: go. So on the stand, um, Robert said that his parents even warned the children to stay away from the windows in the house to avoid being seen. They told us that the world was full of people who wanted to hurt us. But inside their home, his father would punch and kick the boys and casually remind them that I can kill you anytime I want to, Robert said.
1: See, I hate stories like this because I want to know the truth.
0: I know, and there's no way yeah. to know the truth in this. Well, what about the daughter? The 13-year-old girl, um, what she say? I saw a slight mention that she said that there were some heavy disciplinary things going on in the house. But, but it's hard to know. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, damn it. Yeah. So partly as a result of those threats, Robert began to stockpile body armor and often wore it in front of his parents. Okay, but here's my question. If you have a kid who is so isolated and is kept in the home all the Mm -hmm. time, where does he get any money to be buying body armor?
1: That's a good question.
0: Because I know he's ordering it online, he mentions some other things later on, but where's the money coming for it?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously the parents had to have... Had to be funding it. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: And I would think that if the dad was super into being violent mm -hmm. against
0: his kids... He wouldn't want them to have any kind of That's protection. exactly what you're thinking, especially when I tell you this next thing. Okay. <laughs> this says that Robert on the stand said that he would put on his body armor and he would go to his father and say, this is my life preservation rig. With this on, you can't kill me. Okay. And he said on the stand, every time I put the body armor on, I was empowered. I don't know. I know. It's so hard to know. Ugh, okay. It's rough. This whole thing's fucking terrible. Yeah, thanks. In case we haven't gotten good. that really clear yet. Good stuff.
1: <laughs> oh, gosh. I was so excited you were coming over, and now I'm like, God. <laughs> this is
0: over yet? <laughs> Are we at lunch yet? <laughs> so, finally, Robert got to the night. Of the killings Mm -hmm. in his testimony. He said the stabbing started in their Broken Arrow home after 11 p.m. when Michael distracted their 13-year-old sister by pretending to show her something on his laptop. I put my hand over her mouth and I held the blade to her throat, Robert testified. I felt the blood start running down my hand and I was like, oh, shit. He said he expected her to die quickly and quietly, but she fought back. From the moment she didn't drop dead from being stabbed in the throat, it was just chaos, Robert testified. He described experiencing a mental shift that he called flipping the kill switch, telling the court he grabbed an orange knife and stabbed his mother, April Bever, when she came into their room to intervene. Robert also detailed how he stabbed 10-year-old Christopher as he came running toward the commotion, which was around the time that the 13-year-old managed to make it outside and briefly triggered the home security alarm, which Michael turned off. As Michael was pulling the sister back into the home, he warned Robert that their father was coming toward them. He charged at me like he was going to overpower me, so I stabbed him in the chest a bunch. As he was stabbing him, his father asked, "'Why are you doing this?' And Robert said, because I must. To which his father replied, no, you don't. Those were his last words. Oh, my
1: gosh.
0: Next. This part's fucking terrible. What? (laughs) How is it going to get worse? I think this is the worst part. Next, Michael tricked three of his siblings into unlocking doors by claiming that. Robert was trying to kill him, too.
1: Oh.
0: Christopher and Victoria had locked themselves in a first floor bathroom, and Michael frantically knocked on the door, saying, let me in, let me in, he's going to kill me. And when one of the children cracked the door, he kicked it open, and then Robert went in and stabbed them. He said he hesitated before stabbing the small children, and then decided that he, quote, has got to finish the mission. Ugh. Michael then played the same trick on 12-year-old Daniel, who had locked himself into the father's home office and called 911. After getting the door open, Michael reportedly said, All yours. Ew. And Daniel pleaded, Don't kill me. I love you. Oh. Before Robert plunged the knife into the boy's stomach.
1: Don't kill me, I love you? Mm-hmm. It's
0: fucking terrible. Ew. That can be heard in the background of the 911 call. Ew. Yeah. God. Yeah. Robert said he began planning the massacre at least as early as June 30th. 2015 after he realized that he could buy weapons and ammunition online. So this is something that he had had an idea of for a long time. But when he realized that he could actually like buy the stuff necessary to complete it without actually having to go to a store. Yeah. He put his like a serious plan in place. The idea was to kill their family and then drive toward the state of Washington while killing random people along the way. The two decided on the date July 22nd because Robert expected to receive a shipment of ammunition the next day and didn't want his parents to see it. So at this point, he's talking over this plan on the stand of how they're going to, you know, go on this killing spree. And they want to, like, every place they go, they want to shoot and kill five people and then just go on this killing spree across the country. And then he's like, realizing how stupid of a plan it was, because he did. He ordered these guns online that he mm-hmm. had to go to a gun store to pick up. But you have to be 21 to buy a gun. And he's 18. And so he's like, not only am I not 21 and had no way to claim these guns at the store, I didn't have any money to pay for these guns. What was I thinking? Like, he's saying this on the stand.
1: Oh, my God. This is so weird.
0: It's so weird. And then he says... Imagine us trying to carry all that around during a shooting spree, he said, laughing on the witness stand and throwing his hands up in exasperation. I just realized how fickle this plan was. What? Yeah. Then he wondered aloud how other mass killers, including the 2012 Aurora, Colorado theater shooter and the Columbine school shooters had carried their ammunition. I can't figure out how the others did it, he said, in apparent fascination. On the stand. Oh, my God. This guy is so fucked up. So the only time that he showed any emotion other than, like, this laughing stuff. When he's
1: like, what a zany plan. Yeah, oh, what were we thinking?
0: when he was shown a picture of a hatchet that was used in the attack. And the hatchet is, like, yeah. covered in blood. Uh-huh. and he started crying. Oh, why? And the defense attorney's like, "Why are you getting emotional over this?" and he's like, "There's just so much blood and I just don't know what I was thinking." Oh. And at that point, Michael put his hands in his his hands over his face and was crying at at the defense table as yeah. well. I mean, it's just it's so weird and like it's so apparent that they're that mental illness was such a huge role in yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just terrible all around. What was he diagnosed with? You know? There was like a psychosis um, and then like severe depression and anxiety. Hmm. But it had just gone like completely un- yeah, undiagnosed, yeah. unmedicated. Yeah.
1: Yeah, when you're not going in for a physical, you're not going to. You're not,
0: Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Um, In their closing argument, the defense painted a picture of Michael as a boy who just wanted his driver's license, a job and some freedom, but instead was put into a room with his mentally ill brother and subjected to his homicidal fantasies. Hmm. Uh, The defense said that during the killings, Michael was torn between fear, love, and admiration for his brother and that he didn't actually kill anyone himself. In the state's closing argument, they quoted a journal entry of Michael's that read, Once upon a time, there were two brothers named Michael and Robert who hated their family, so they killed them. The end. Oh. Yuck.
1: And I assume they also brought up that knife that had... Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah.
0: And they said that Michael and Robert wanted to become famous mass murderers at the expense of their family. And they asked jurors to use common sense to find Michael guilty. They finished by playing the 911 call from David, where he could be heard begging his brothers not to murder him. Oh. On May 9th, 2018, so...
1: A fresh one. That's that's a real fresh one. A fresh
0: one. one. The closing arguments, like, finished at five o'clock and the jury went back to deliberate. They delivered a verdict that night. Uh, They deliberated for something around like four hours, I think. Mm -hmm. The jury found Michael Bever guilty on all counts. Yeah. In one small act of leniency, or perhaps a sign that they believed some of what the defense argued the jury recommended a sentence of life with the possibility of parole. Though the likelihood of him ever getting paroled is small, the jury had the choice of recommending life without parole, and they didn't.
1: I think they did what I would have done. Yeah. Yeah. For a 16-year-old? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think I'd put him
0: away forever. Mm-hmm. Because he has five life sentences, and he also they also sentenced him to 28 Years for the assault on the surviving sister. Mm-hmm. Was serve. there a sexual assault? Also? No. Okay. okay. No. They, uh, he will have to serve so many years before he would even be eligible for parole. Yeah. It's l- not likely that he'll ever be paroled. I'm cool with that. I am too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's the horrible God, tale of what? the Bever oh. family murders. That was terrible. It's crazy. What are your thoughts? Um, I think that probably the isolation Mm -hmm. of the boys led to the family being the outlet for this rage and mental illness. But... I think probably had Michael not been subjected to Robert he probably never would have done this. Yeah. But I think that Robert probably even under normal what I'll say is normal in mm-hmm. air quotes upbringing would probably done some form of yeah criminal act. Yeah. Ugh. yeah um so the 13 year old and the two year old are we're taken into state custody and i think are living with foster parents
1: hmm. god i hope they're doing okay
0: me too oh. yikes sorry to do such a terrible one <laughs> I started doing it and I was like working on it last night and I was like, God, this is fucking terrible. <laughs> I was like, why was I so excited to cover this case? I mean, it is an interesting case. It's interesting. And I think that it's so horrifying. And I think that like outside of like the Tulsa area, didn't get a lot of media coverage, no, which is crazy to it. me because how
1: did you hear about it?
0: I just stumbled on a Google alert. I just stumbled on a on a news blurb about it and I was Hmm. like, Oh, what's that? A whole family murdered, let me hear more. (laughs) (laughs) do they stand. Oh, even better.
1: (laughs) Can't go about my day without hearing more.
0: Oh my God oh that's rough so i think i would like to wrap up here by saying that daniel the kid who made the 911 call Mm -hmm. he saved a lot of people's lives because had the police not come and stopped them they would have been gone on some kind of killing spree yeah who knows what they would have been able to do without you know being able to get the guns or whatever but they were able to wipe out a whole fucking family in 10 minutes
1: I think they would have found guns I think they, they would, have would have found have, some way they would have made a way
0: yeah and so that was something that they made a point of at yeah that he was like the the hero here yeah yeah oh god why <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm gonna throw it over to you Kristen to tell us a story to bring us all up oh you know what I can't stop
1: thinking about what this is true this is so gross have you seen the show age gap love on Netflix no (laughs) okay freaking Norman so we put it on one time just as like what the hell is this yeah and it's this British show about couples with big, creepy age gaps, as you might imagine. How
0: big of an age gap is creepy, Kristen? Um, I would say 30 years, oh, 20 God, years, yeah. 40 years. I mean, yeah. All right. That's a lot. Yeah.
1: Big time age gaps.
0: Yeah. So. I was going to say, because you're like, you're kind of a cougar.
1: Okay. Norman has said <laughs> that he wants to apply for the show. <laughs> And his application yeah. would be I'm 30, my wife is thirty-two, we wanna be on age cap law. <laughs> I I wanted to punch him when he said that. <laughs> but no, this this show is so creepy. I do I am not recommending it to anybody. <laughs> okay. Um so This is not a glowing recommendation. No, no it's show. awful. I'm saying I was scarred. <laughs> oh, so God. we watch we start watching one episode and I was like, hey, hey, hey. I can't. We got to switch to the <laughs> office. We, we can't watch this. So I come in there last night because I was working on the episode. Yeah. I come in. He's watching it again. And this episode was like a train wreck. I mean, you could not look away. There was this one guy. Oh, my God. This is so gross. The woman was 60. He was like 28. And he's like giving her a pedicure. Oh, it, it was too much, too much, too much. But I couldn't turn it off. Anyway. Was he giving her a pedicure with his tongue? Okay, here's here's what he did. And I, I don't know why this was so bad, but this was when I really lost it. So she's laying in bed. You know, he's... God, this, this is disgusting. He's, like, rubbing on her feet. He's got the nail file out, and he's, like, sanding down those claws. And then he bends down to her foot and goes... To like blow off, the stuff. and then for some reason when he did that, I was like, "No, <laughs>
0: that's where you draw the
1: line." Huh? I could not handle it. Oh, Yeah, that's pretty gross. Yeah, so I don't know if that's lightening it up. It,
0: it absolutely is. Okay, okay. I loved it. Um, I'm not gonna watch that show. Though. Do not because I, it's seriously. I can't stop thinking about it. It's so gross. <laughs> Just in there in your brain now.
1: It's. It can't leave, and then I got kind of weirdly attached to one of the cougars. No. She's like, "Did she, you relate
0: to her being a cougar <laughs>
1: yourself?" Yeah, she's thirty
0: two. <laughs> no, she's like this. um Zach and I are the exact same age, so well, we're seven dog. days apart. So good luck making fun of our age gap. Who's older? Zach is seven days older oh, well, than damn I am. It. I, got... <laughs> I really
1: can't make fun nope. of that. <laughs> anyway so this there's this like 68 year old lady yeah she keeps herself in good shape Uh but she has these massive fake boobs Uh like like we're talking balloons Uh that are if you had to guess a cup size she said her cup size i think it was like an f that's pretty big oh yeah and i mean she's she's not a big lady she's like a petite (laughs) woman who looks like she's about to fall Fall over over, yes (laughs) And um far be it from me to, to say this but she wears too much makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I feel personally attacked by you right now. Chris. <laughs> Listen, you and I both enjoy some makeup, That's right? But this lady I'm looking at her like you can't have the eyeliner going all the way around your eye. <laughs> And do the cat eye. Like, there's got to be a limit. There's got to be some kind of limit. <laughs> but anyway, she all she wants is a toy boy, which I guess is what they call them in the UK. They don't say boy toy. A
0: toy boy, huh? Toy boy.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I kind of like that. But I was kind of rooting for her. Yeah. I, I, I've had a lot of weird feelings last night. <laughs> is what I'm trying <laughs> to tell weird you. Feelings. Well, if
0: this podcast has given you (laughs) weird feelings, then. uh, Which I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. Um, Find us on social media. Give us a like. Give us a follow. Head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review and a rating. And join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics.
1: Podcast Podcast adjourned. adjourned. Now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary.
0: And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts.
1: For this episode, I got my info from The Washington Post, The New York Times... And the Rolling Stone.
0: I got my info from reports by Lori Fulbright and Taylor Newcomb for News on 6 and articles for TulsaWorld.com. For a full list of our sources, visit LGTCPodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff.